Good evening. The death of a titan in South Africa. We look at the life of Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of Cape Town, South Africa. Then we talk about the NDAA, the new defense authorization budget passed bipartisan, uh, by a bipartisan vote of both houses of the United States legislature, what it means for the U.S. and the world to have a country with a military bigger than almost every country in the world. And finally, we talked to retired Judge Bill Blum about the time that Donald Trump is facing and not in office. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, December 27th, 2021. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top United States infectious disease expert, said today the United States should consider a vaccination mandate for domestic air travel, a significant departure from the Biden administration as COVID-19 cases spike. Fauci is President Joe Biden's chief science advisor on the pandemic response. Fauci says an airline mandate might drive up the nation's lagging vaccination rate and confer stronger protection from the coronavirus Currently, federal regulations require all passengers aged two and older to wear a mask on board. The U.S. currently mandates that most foreign nationals traveling to this country be fully vaccinated against the coronavirus. Those citizens and permanent residents need only show proof of a negative test taken within a day of boarding. Data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show more than 241 million Americans, about 77 percent of the eligible population age five and over, have received at least one shot of a COVID-19 vaccine. But experts say they believe the number is an overcount and many more have yet to get the jab. In related news, United States health officials today cut isolation restrictions for Americans who catch the coronavirus from 10 to 5 days and shorten the time close contacts need to quarantine. The CDC says the guidance keeps with growing evidence that people with the coronavirus are most infectious two days before and three days after symptoms develop. The clock starts the day you test positive. At the end of five days, if you have no symptoms, you can return to normal activities, but must wear a mask everywhere, even at home around others, for at least five more days. For quarantine, the clock starts the day someone is alerted that they may have been exposed to the virus. Meanwhile, flight cancellations stretched into Monday as airlines called off thousands more flights because crews are sick with COVID-19 during one of the busiest travel periods of the year. Airlines encouraged workers to quit in 2020 when air travel collapsed and carriers have struggled to make up ground this year when air travel rebounded faster than almost anyone had expected. Since Friday, airlines have canceled more than 4,000 flights to, from, or inside the United States with only 1,000 U.S. cancellations, with over 1,000 U.S. uh, cancellations on Monday alone. And across the sea, South Africa is planning a week of services and events to honor Desmond Tutu as a nonviolent warrior for racial equality and LGBT rights. Tutu, the Anglican Archbishop Emeritus of Cape Town, died Sunday at the age of 90. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa visited Tutu's home near Cape Town to pay his respects to Tutu's widow, Leah, and the family. Ramaphosa had this to say. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was one of our nation's finest patriots. He was a man of unwavering courage, of principled conviction, and whose life was spent in the service of others. He in many ways embodied the essence of our humanity. 
knowing he had been ill for some time now, does very little to lessen the blow that has been dealt to South Africa this very sad day. Like many of his time, he was a witness to the gravest injustices and most intolerable cruelty that our country has ever witnessed. In his ministry, in his struggle against apartheid, and as chairperson of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he saw the depths to which human beings could descend in the subjugation and oppression of others. And yet his faith in humanity and in people, like his faith in God, was unwavering. He knew in his soul that good would triumph over evil, that justice would prevail over iniquity, and that reconciliation would prevail over revenge and recrimination. Cyril Ramaphosa is the president of South Africa. Although best known for helping to end decades of apartheid segregation in South Africa, Tutu was also an outspoken defender of LGBTQ rights. He says so during a speech at Regis University after the brutal murder in Wyoming of a gay man, Matthew Shepard, in 1998. I could become a Nobel laureate. I could become Archbishop of the Church of God. But in the land of my birth, I was treated like dirt. And it tends to go along with other things. Homophobia. It is birth of a feather. The same passion with which I have fought against racism, I will fight against homophobia. Matthew Shepard was killed. Not very far from here. I can tell you that for me, I would reject Jesus if he was amongst those who wanted to exclude people because of their sexual orientation. Archbishop Desmond Tutu giving a commencement speech at Regis University in Denver. The current Archbishop of Cape Town is Dr. Thabo Makoba. He says Tutu was revered by millions around the world. His starting point and his ending point was his relationship with our Creator. He took God, God's purpose, and God's creation deadly seriously. Prayer, the scriptures, and his ministry to the people God entrusted to his care. Dr. Thabo Makoba is Archbishop of Cape Town. Desmond Tutu had wide-ranging, a uh, wide-ranging portfolio of his, in his struggle against those he saw as human rights abusers. 
That included going to visit the attempting to go to Tibet to visit the Dalai Lama, where he was banned from by China from uh, from going from traveling. In his last publicized article, though, Tutu condemned successive U.S. presidents for refusing to acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons. In that article, he wrote that U.S. taxpayer funds Israel, exceeding that to any other country, adjusted for inflation. The publicly known amount over the years is now approaching $300 billion. Tutu added the farce should end. The United States government should uphold its laws and cut off funding to Israel because of its acquisition and proliferation of nuclear weapons. Bill Fletcher Jr. is the former head of TransAfrica, a group deeply involved in fighting for human rights in Africa and in South Africa. He had this to say fighter and profound internationalist and human rights activist, as well as a theologian, obviously. We're entering a period, and this happens after the death of almost all good progressive leaders, that the larger establishment attempts to soften them, soften the memory of them, and make them characters that appear to be more consistent with the objectives of the establishment. That would be the danger in the case of the memory of Archbishop Tutu. And that's one of the reasons that this article concerning Israel and nuclear weapons is very important. Tutu was consistently in support of Palestinian rights. This is not something that just happened in the last week or a few months. He's been consistently. But this is something that the larger mainstream media has chosen to ignore. So they basically place Tutu in a certain kind of historic box. And that box is the anti-apartheid movement. And as long as you have him focused on the criminality of South African apartheid, he's acceptable as far as the mainstream media is concerned. But when Tutu started speaking out beyond that apartheid box, that's when the cone of silence goes down. And we don't hear his voices unless you seek alternative media. And I think that that's why it's going to be very important that we remember and we cherish the real importance, the value, the humanity of Archbishop Tutu. He talked about Israel as an apartheid state, basically the silence of the world in the face of nuclear proliferation by this one country. Well, that's correct. I mean, ever since the 1960s, when Israel started developing and experimenting with nuclear weapons, the United States has been strangely silent about this. The fact that Israel has not signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the fact that no president will acknowledge that uh, Israel has nuclear weapons. So one of the things for which I was furious with uh, former President Obama, uh, that the, the failure to acknowledge that there is a nuclear weapons threat in the Middle East, and that threat is represented by Israel. They're the ones that have the nuclear weapons. They're the ones who have not signed a nuclear non-proliferation treaty. It's not like the possibility of nuclear weapons in Iran, as an example. It's the reality of that. But on top of that, what uh, should really have settled the question was the collaboration between Israel and, South, and the apartheid South African regime in the development of weapons of mass destruction. This is documented. This is not something that someone made up. This is not, quote-unquote, alternative facts. It's documented. And what Tutu was pointing out, uh, was pointing out, was 
that that silence represents an immense level of hypocrisy on the part of various U.S. presidencies as well as other so-called Western democracies who have refused to come out and say Israel has nuclear weapons. This is, this is not something that should be tolerated. There should be a denuclearization of the Middle East. If, if, if Iran cannot have nuclear weapons, Israel shouldn't have nuclear weapons. No one should have nuclear weapons. And I think that, uh, that, that uh, Archbishop Tutu is making that point, as well as elevating the whole question of the Israeli apartheid regime, which many people in the U.S. and the uh, liberal establishment for sure, but certainly in conservative sectors like the Christian Zionists, they don't want to hear such discussion. Desmond Tutu and forgiveness, uh, that's something you don't really hear in America today where people are so polarized and, and we have a growing trail of blood. What are, where does something like forgiveness fit in? Forgiveness has a role as long as it's connected with the truth. So, and this is something we can learn from many great leaders. Uh, Archbishop Tutu is one. Martin Luther King uh, obviously was another. That forgiveness in the abstract is meaningless. But connected with the truth, it's very, very important. In other words, acknowledging the truth, acknowledging the truth about history. If you acknowledge the truth about history, then you can move from that to rectification and then reconciliation, which I connect the issue of forgiveness. But you have to first acknowledge the truth. There is no equivalence. The lynchings that have happened to people of color throughout history. This is simply no comparison. There is no equivalence. That's what's really important. You start with the truth, and then you can get to forgiveness. If people carry out atrocities and simply say, I wish to be forgiven, what does that mean? If people carry out slavery and have enslaved people, and then they wish forgiveness before they encounter God, what does that mean? It means nothing there's going to be an easy way for people to change the essence of Tutu by focusing on forgiveness as an abstraction. No, it was connected with the issue of the truth. Get to the truth, and then you can get to forgiveness. And that is Bill Fletcher Jr. He's the former head of Trans-Africa. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In more news... Russian President Vladimir Putin gave a four-hour marathon news conference last week. One of the issues he discussed, the role of Ukraine and NATO in Russia's worsening relationship with the United States. Putin says the U.S. is pushing its military too close to Russia's borders and imperils Russia's security. The United States says it's just defending the territorial integrity of Russia's neighbors. But Putin was direct. It's the U.S., he said, that's the aggressor. Our actions will depend not on the negotiations, but on the unconditional security of Russia today and in the future. In this regard, we have made it absolutely clear that NATO's expansion to the east is unacceptable. What's, what's not clear about it? We are not the ones that deploy missiles next to the United States borders. That's the other way around. The United States brought their missiles next to our borders. They are at our threshold. And uh, that was President Vladimir Putin of Russia giving a uh, long four-hour 
uh, press conference, his end-of-the-year press conference. Retired Marine Major Danny Surgeon was deployed to Iraq. He's currently director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Surgeon says although he has no love lost for the Russian leader's style of government, on this issue, Putin has it right. What's interesting about the bill is that the focus has been on these cultural issues. So things like whether women will be drafted, whether sexual assault will be taken out of the hands of commanders and put into a civilian, you know, sort of oversight, or even the the new sort of UFO study bill, which is actually like in this NDAA for the first time in open source, that gets the attention. What doesn't get the attention is that obviously this is an obscene spending bill that largely funds things that don't make us safe. And so, you know, $768 billion is the standard defense budget, and defense belongs in quotes. But if you include things like Homeland Security, the paramilitarized intelligence services, as well as the Department of Energy's nuclear funding for a nuclear program that can't be used, it comes up to about $1.25 trillion, which we would call a national security budget. But, of course, it doesn't secure us hyper-militarization and ever-expanding military spending is the one bipartisan issue in Congress. Only half a dozen countries in the world have GDPs larger than the U.S. defense budget. And then if you look at the next eight or so countries' military budgets, which ours is larger than, we're allied, or at least tacitly allied, with five of them. And that's if you believe that Russia and China are genuine adversaries. Putin was saying, I'm weak. I lost half my country because of Yeltsin, the guy before me. We can't fight you. You're stronger than us. He was admitting it. Putin's not wrong to say that on a certain level. When the Soviet Union falls apart, the nature of the deal that was made, tens of millions of ethnic Russians are left in these other countries that the United States, leading NATO, tries to pull into the NATO orbit against the promises made by George H.W. Bush. And so the gripes are real, and that's not an affection for Russia. Here's the crazy part. Russia can probably win a limited war without nuclear weapons in the Baltics or in eastern Poland, and certainly in the Ukraine, while spending less, what, about 10% or less than the U.S. military budget, which tells you that we have a military budget that is a boondoggle, that is a gift to the war industry without necessarily actually making us more effective at what we are supposed to be able to do. Are we going to try and take over the world like the conqueror, Alexander the Great? I mean, are we going to bring Western civilization to the world? Is that the whole thing here? If it had that kind of idealism underpinning it, I wouldn't agree with it, but I would at least have some respect for the concept. We've gotten to this strange place where the U.S. military budget is not underpinning any sort of real ideology. Nation building, democracy spreading, that failed. I mean, the only nation building that really happened that was effective was in Northern Virginia, where the war industry executives put nation-builded extensions on their McMansions. The U.S. experiment in worldwide nation building as a response to terror has been utter failures. What's the real threat? The real threat is, is twofold. Number one, a mistaken nuclear war that ends the species or the climate catastrophe that's impending. Both of those require a degree of cooperation or at least cohabitation with our supposed adversaries. Everything about the U.S. military budget is contravening that. Much of what is in this bill is directed at Russia and China. But we can't fight Russia or China. 
we actually don't. We neither have the motive, the means, nor the necessity to do so. But if you are a war industry merchant of death, blood money profiteer, then this NDAA was built for you. Veterans of that national security state, and I'm only one of many, are questioning that conceptual framework. Biden talks about build back better. Let's build back a better strategy for American national security because it ain't worked since September 12th. Retired Marine Major Danny Shurgeon was deployed to Iraq. He's currently director of the Eisenhower Media Network. He was speaking of the NDAA, the United States defense budget, recently passed in a bipartisan vote in Congress at over $780 billion, the largest in history. And the former president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, is facing a storm of criminal and civil actions in numerous venues, but he's weathered them all up till now. He's yet to be charged with a single criminal offense. But retired Judge Bill Blum writes there are encouraging signs that Trump may finally be headed for a day of reckoning. Blum says the January 6th uh, Select Committee is diligently investigating the origins of the insurrection as state-level investigations against Trump appear to be heating up in New York and Georgia. Blum spoke with WBAI today. He says, whatever the outcome of the investigations against Trump, it's important to follow through. The public evidence points to a wide range of criminal activity, both federal and state. Federally, we think of the events of January 6th, inciting an insurrection, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and obstructing an official proceeding, the House Select Committee on January 6th. And then you have a range of other federal offenses relating to the phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find enough votes to overturn the election. There are two federal crimes involved in that phone call, as well as Georgia offenses. And then you can go back to the Mueller investigation and the 2016 election. You still have crimes that are very much alive the hush money payoffs to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal uh, using Michael Cohen as his emissary and then reimbursing Michael Cohen for those payoffs would involve a conspiracy to violate federal campaign finance laws. And, of course, you have all the obstruction of justice documented in the Mueller report. Then we have New York, which is basically investigating Trump a la Al Capone for uh, engaging in fraudulent business practices with uh, everything from falsifying business records to tax and insurance fraud to conspiracy, racketeering under state law. And of course, you got the Georgia offenses under Georgia law for that Raffensperger phone call. New York, we know, has had a grand jury impaneled for quite a while now. The public disclosures indicate that they are looking at a business practice whereby Trump and his organization allegedly would understate the value of properties for tax purposes and overstate the value of the same property uh, by wide margins for insurance purposes. So if that's true and there's a pattern in practice of doing that, then you could see him indicted under state law. So Donald Trump is in great jeopardy. That doesn't mean that anything necessarily is going to happen. 
but it means that we are coming to an inflection point in all of these investigations of the potential criminality of the 45th president of the United States. Unintended consequences. You never know what will happen when you start following down a road. Trump having the support of 40 percent of Americans. There can be unintended adverse consequences of going after someone as powerful as Donald Trump. And so you have to weigh those unintended consequences from letting Trump and his top lieutenants off and what happens to this country. If the evidence is there, the public record points to the evidence being there, but we can't say that for sure until prosecutors actually return indictments and secure convictions. The Republicans are going to do what they want to do regardless of what the Democrats believe is fair and just. Eerie parallels to the 1850s and the years right before the American Civil War. We are at a point in this country that's eerily reminiscent of the lead up to the Civil War. And if we let the leaders of January 6th, particularly the ringleader off scot-free, January 6th will turn out to be just a dress rehearsal for the next and far more dangerous attempted coup. And as retired Judge Bill Blum, he writes a, uh, a blog called Blum's Law. And finally, despite a recent rise in pediatric hospital admissions across New York City, Governor Kathy Hochul said schools will stay open amid a surge in COVID-19 cases. Hochul, providing a post-Christmas update today, said the state is planning for all scenarios, including the worst-case scenario, as the Omicron variant has contributed to a case rise statewide. That case rise has been accompanied by a rise in pediatric hospital admissions from December 19th to 23rd. The state reported 184 admissions, with 109 of them in New York City alone. Hochul's goal, also repeated by the acting health commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett, is to keep schools open despite these room numbers and lower than expected vaccination statistics among children aged 5 through 11. Hochul says the state's seven-day average per 100,000 people statewide is now at 1802 with the rates highest in New York City and Long Island and lowest in the North Country. There were 5,526 hospitalizations over the last day, with 132 deaths statewide this weekend. And that's some of the news for Monday, December 27th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.